on today's episode, The Science of Running Fatigued with Hannah Dimmick. Welcome to the podcast, helping you train, rehab, and run smarter. When I first started running in my 20s, I knew it would be something I'd be passionate about for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me undertrained at the start line on race day. Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. As I've said previously, I want um, 2024 to focus a little bit more on the research, focus on a little bit more uh, what's emerging in the latest when it comes to running research. And today is an example of that. I had a paper that came onto my desk a couple of weeks ago, which was titled The Use of Subjective Specific Models to Detect Fatigue-Related Changes in Running Biomechanics. Uh, One of the authors is my guest today, Hannah Dimmick, and Hannah has done her bachelor and master's in exercise science. She's done a PhD in kinesiology, where she specialized in wearable technologies. And like I said, she's just recently been a part of this paper. There's some really good, it's actually changed how I think about fatigued running, which I'll explain um, with her during this interview, but we touch base on the paper, her findings, and some practical takeaways you can use for your running, running fatigued, um, some lessons to help with, you know, mitigating injuries and increasing running performance, and um, just some really useful lessons into understanding running fatigued and where the research is going and where it can take us. Um, and so I had a great conversation with Hannah, and I hope you enjoy. Hannah, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to learn more about you because I don't know much about you. Uh, Would you mind just introducing yourself, where you're from, and I guess a bit of a background into your your history, both academically and um, have you involved in any running yourself? Yeah, so um, I the running started the academics actually. So um, I ran track and cross country in high school, and then was able to continue that into college at the University of Kansas. Um, and that's really how my interest got sparked in human physiology and biomechanics and in learning about sports science in general. Um, so I majored in um, exercise science at KU, and I was able to get involved in some undergraduate research there in Dr. Trent Herta's lab. So we're focused more on uh, that was the neuromechanics labs. So we're focused more on muscle physiology and motor unit properties. Um, so my undergraduate research um, was focused on chronically endurance trained women, which is also just a nice way to say I just peer pressured all my teammates into (laughs) participating (laughs) in my study. Um, But we were looking at the effect of chronic endurance training on motor unit characteristics and responses and muscle physiology. Uh, My master's thesis, I stayed in the same lab and I switched over a little bit more to looking at a sex-based differences analysis of muscle tissue and 
uh, motor unit characteristics in uh, between sexes. So when I went to look at where I wanted to do my PhD and what I wanted to do it in, I was kind of looking at how much fun I'd had doing research, but wanting to move into maybe topics that were a little bit more interesting and specifically relevant to things. So I kind of picked technology. I was really interested in the integration of technology into exercise and then running and running injuries, running performance were things that I was really interested in. So I was able to contact Dr. Reed Ferber at uh, University of Calgary, and he had actually just started a wearable technology training program. And then his background was also in running injury research. So it seemed like it just a really perfect fit. So that's where I did my PhD. And I just finished that up um, a month ago. So excellent. Yeah. Good work. Um, back to your earlier studies. I know you said you wanted to transition into, you know, continue with stuff you're interested in, but something that's more practically based. And you mentioned like um, sex differences and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. In your earlier research and your undergrad stuff, it was any key themes or any key takeaways for recreational runners to sort of get out of the research you had been doing? I It was a relatively basic science type study. So our main finding was just that when we compared a group of more sedentary college age women to the um, cross country team athletes, we saw that likely or kind of what we took away from that research was that we saw that type one fibers could hypertrophy, um, which we hadn't really, hadn't really been looked at before. Um, and so the, for the most part, when you're talking about muscle hypertrophy, it's going to be the type two, type two X fibers that you're seeing most of the growth in. But we showed that what looked like uh, larger type one fibers in the endurance athletes than um, the sedentary women. So not necessarily so much of a, an, an applicable uh, takeaway, but it's just kind of an interesting look at the effect of long-term endurance training on muscle structure. Yeah. Well, I was definitely interested in this most recent paper you were involved with, um, particularly it's like practical applications and, you know, things to do with fatigue related, um, running and mechanics what was the idea like I guess based on what you were just saying you didn't have much of a say in terms of the overall design of it it seems like it it was already kind of the structure was already in play and you've agreed to take part in it is that how it sort of eventuated so this study in particular was uh, somewhat of a collaboration with uh, my lab as well as the another lab at University of Calgary so the way that we structured it is we kind of had this idea of wanting to look at the differences in running form, running biomechanics between non-fatigued and fatigued states during a long run. And so we accessed a couple different data sets. Um, one was from my friend Cody, uh, Cody Van Rassel, who's one of the co-authors on the paper. He had performed a study where he had um, participants perform four runs each uh, at or around maximal lactate steady state or um, about lactate threshold. And so we had long runs at that relatively high intensity and we had multiple runs from each participant. So 
we used that data set um, as well as something called the Citizen Scientist Database, which was part of the wearable technology program at the U of C. And with that, we were able to get individuals from the community to sign up with their wearable devices that they're already using for running or other activities. And the API plugged in so that we were able to just pull the data from their wearable devices and analyze it. And this was all anonymous, so we actually don't know who participated in that side of the study. But it's a really amazing data set to have because it's super generalizable. We're not actually prescribing any of the training runs. It's just people's individual decisions that they're making. So it's about as um, applied as you can get with that data set. But um, we wanted to get kind of the two sides. The study that we used from Cody's work was fully based on the treadmill, whereas the citizen scientist database was fully outdoors and uncontrolled. So we got kind of both perspectives there. Yeah. And so you're gathering previously collected data and mm-hmm. trying to draw conclusions. Um, what were you aiming for? Like, it, was there a certain hypothesis that you're before conducting the study that you were hoping to get out of it? Yeah. So what we had found, what's been kind of found previously is that there's not really good systematic connections between specific running biomechanics aspects and injury. Um, So that's not necessarily true that that holds for every individual, but we can't say, you know, everyone that has more knee flexion is more likely to get injured. It just, there's been a lot of research into that, especially previously with, you know, barefoot running trends and forefoot strike trends and that sort of thing. And it just hasn't necessarily panned out that we've been able to find these, if you run like this, you're more likely to get injured than if you run like this sort of thing. But all of those studies have been done usually in people's non-fatigued state. You know, you're doing a couple strides on a force platform or um, just getting a couple minutes of running in on a treadmill. Uh, But it's also another hypothesis here is that the way that your running form changes as you're getting fatigued might actually be more connected to injury than just how you're running when you're fresh. So this is not my original idea. Some of these studies that I was citing and looking at, you know, from the 1990s, this is definitely an old theory. Um, But the kind of basis of it is that, you know, your body might adapt or you might, when you're not fatigued, that running form is something that to some extent your nervous system is choosing for you, you know, or that you have adapted to. And the tissues that you're stressing are able to take that stress and that load at those angles, at those forces. Um, But then as you fatigue, you might move away from that quote unquote optimal running form for you. And this might be due to different weaknesses um, or just different ways that your body's getting fatigued. But in theory, then you might be putting stress on tissues that weren't meant to absorb that force. So that might be a little bit more related to why you might get injured than just how you're naturally running when you're not in a fatigue state. So this is kind of the, all the background, but also with that, there haven't been a lot of systemic conclusions of if your form changes this way to this, when you're fatigued, it might be related to this injury. I haven't really found that, but most of these studies looking at the connection between fatigue, biomechanical changes and, um, 
performance or injury have all noted that this is a really individualized response. So one of the studies that I cite pretty frequently, they were looking at the effect of fatigue on uh, tibial acceleration, and they reported no change in tibial acceleration. But in the results, they also kind of noted, hey, what actually happened here was half of our people increased and half of our people decreased, and only one person actually didn't really show a change between uh, fatigue and or at, across the course of being fatigued. So this takeaway that there's no change is actually just kind of being washed out by different responses. So taking all of that, giving a lot of background to get to one very specific <laughs> uh, purpose, but taking all of that, we really wanted to look to see if we could create more individualized models of how people's form was changing over the course of fatigue. And hopefully while we didn't take that next step and say, is this connected to injury? That's where we like this research to lead is to be able to see if we can create kind of a fingerprint or a signature of how an individual's form is changing over the course of a prolonged or fatiguing run. We might be able to see how that could be putting them at risk for different things or um, design interventions around that. But I just knew that Clearly, with the evidence here, we're not really getting a lot of information about how those connections might be occurring um, when we're looking at a big group. So we want to take those data sets and see if we could address this question, really. Yeah. Makes me think why <clears throat> it's surprising how I haven't come across a lot of studies that focus on fatigue. Uh, maybe this might be my, I'm not actively going out and looking for it, but I definitely see a lot of running related or trying to identify running related injuries based on mechanics, form, technique, uh, all that sort of stuff and strength even. Um, but it makes sense that if you look at someone who's running a marathon and you look at them in the first like five kilometers, they're running completely different by kilometer 30. Mm -hmm. And we know that as a, from a running injury prevention type of thing, you know, making sure that our tissues, our muscles, our tendons, our bones are staying within acceptable limits of what we can tolerate or, you know, not exceeding their capacity mm -hmm. in a way. But we know that an economical way of running is kind of fresh, kind of springy, kind of like rigid. Their te mm -hmm. Your tendons are very um, stiff and springy, but that is very hard to do for a long, long period of time. And people get sloppy, people hit the ground harder, their contact time is longer and, you know, their overall posture is a little bit more slouched, they're a little bit more lagged behind and all of that economy, what helps an efficient runner sort of just really tends to waste away. So it's it's an interesting element to look at when it comes to um, running fatigue. So yeah, it's, uh, I think most people aren't really looking at what they're, how much time they're spending running fatigued in terms mm -hmm. of people track their mileage, people track their intensities, people track their, you know, terrain and hills and heart rate and all that sort of stuff. Um, time spent running fatigued. I don't know how, if anyone's really tracking that, which might actually be a fairly strong indicator. Yeah. And I think an interesting thing to go off of what you're talking about is kind of the difference here between looking at maybe injury prevention and performance and how there might be kind of, there's frequently a trade-off there um, in terms of training and even in terms of, you know, acute racing situations. Um, I There's also, um, it's been kind of proposed that 
maybe these changes that you experience over the course of fatigue are actually protective. Um, we see a lot. Uh, the most common thing, of course, this is again not true for everyone, but the most common thing is you see greater knee flexion at um, initial contact. And that's been kind of the conclusions from that have been that maybe this is a way to land more softly and that you're landing more softly, but that's not necessarily helpful for performance. So we don't necessarily know and we don't want to say that, okay, these changes that you're making when you're fatigued, they might be related to injury. They also might be protective. It's hard at this point to totally say there might be some that are protective. There might be some that are dangerous. Um, we don't quite have the evidence for that yet, but we there's a little more evidence to say that these form breakdowns do have an impact on performance. And so if you can be more aware of what these are, especially in a race situation or maybe a more intense workout situation, um, and be more conscious of staying with maybe your less fatigued form, um, that might be more helpful to performance. And, you know, maybe we find out that that's actually worse. Maybe you should let your form change as you get fatigued. But um, we make, again, trade-offs for performance and injury prevention in race situations all the time. So obviously you're not going to run a long run in spikes, but you might for a 5K. Um, so I think that that's another component that will be interesting, hopefully, as we can continue advancing this line of thought and research is to see what parts are maybe helpful and protective and where we can um, change things for performance versus injury prevention. Yeah. And so looking back to this study, um, what were your findings? Like you had... Uh... Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Like you say, you gathered the data and you're trying to compile it with a certain hypothesis. Um, what sort of key takeaways did you find? So the way that we set this up is we took um, the biomechanical variables from each of these runs and we constructed two different kinds of models. So we did the individual models as well as a group-based model. And this we did separately for each of the protocols since they had a little bit different um, elements to them. Uh, and so we wanted to compare. The most basic question we had was, does making and are the individualized models more accurate when classifying fatigue states than the group-based models? And to that basic question, it was far and away yes. So the group-based models were around 50% accuracy at classifying fatigued and non-fatigued. So they basically could not tell. Um, when you're only using when you're using information from the whole group, it became basically impossible to classify fatigue in an individual. Uh, the individual models, while they were not quite as high of accuracy as I was certainly hoping, they were around 67% on average. So still not great. This is still a tricky task. What I found interesting about that was that there's a really large range. So we did see some individuals that were around 50%, you know, not really helpful. But then I had one individual who was 92% accurate for classifying. So pretty good. And 
don't really know what the difference was between that. That person that was 92% was in our science citizen scientist um, study. So we don't really know much about them, but uh, we kind of hypothesized that this might be due to a different difference in fitness or in training history that as you maybe have a longer training history or gain fitness that these differences in running biomechanics might not be as different between the beginning and end, you might kind of be able to adapt to this and your form changes less over the course of a prolonged run uh, when you do have that longer training history. Um, but this is another thing that I'm super interested in looking at as kind mm. of a next step to see um, how that all works. So that was kind of the basic purpose of it was, I think we did kind of effectively find that individualizing these models is a helpful approach, at least for most individuals that we studied. Um, but where I really felt like it was kind of the most interesting was um, we also looked at variable importance rankings, which I'll try not to get too into the weeds on this because it's very boring some parts, <laughs> but we used uh, random forest classifiers. And what the random forest classifier will do is output a ranking of how important each variable was to its ultimate decision of was this stride part of the fatigued or non-fatigued condition. So you can really see what the classifier and what the model is finding to be the important differences between those two conditions. And what we found was that in the group-based model, it was really strongly coming back to cadence and stance time. But if you looked at the individual models, some people, stance time and cadence were important. For some people, one of them was important. But for most people, neither one of them was the most important thing distinguishing between these two states. So when you're, we could clearly see, you know, when you're looking at these group-based models, you really are kind of ending up at this lowest common denominator. And for the, for most people, then if we tried to base some sort of intervention or get any relevant information from that group-based model, it's not going to really be helpful for most of the individuals in the study. So I think that that was also really important, less about the uh, raw accuracy of that, because hopefully with improvements in technology, improvements in models, that sort of thing, we can get that up a little bit higher. But um, to see that our kind of hypothesis about these group-based uh, analyses was correct, that when you are just looking at the group, you're not necessarily getting relevant information for an individual, I thought that was really interesting and important. And I think that while this study just in and of itself is not answering all of those questions, I think that the potential of wearable technology here is really cool because previously um, the reason that most of these studies were group-based analysis is because it's really hard to get enough data to do subject-specific models. Um, if you're only having people come into the lab one day, which is already difficult to have people travel to you and get them equipped with all of the sensors and that sort of thing. You don't have enough information to create a subject specific model. But when you have people, especially with the citizen scientist database aspect of this, who are wearing their own devices and already collecting all this biomechanical data themselves, um, and the, the sample rates on these devices are certainly high enough to get these large data sets to be able to make these individual classifiers, I think we've moved into a new time period where now we can actually, we do have the data, we do have the capability to start looking at a more individualized approach to this that we maybe didn't have access to 
previously, which is really exciting. So those were kind of my key takeaways here was, uh, yeah, individualized modeling, I think is probably the future here. And I'm excited for the technological advances that are kind of making that possible. Yeah. I might be backtracking a little bit or just trying to wrap my head around it, but did you need to come up with a definition or did the model need to come up with a definition of what is fatigued to then make the necessary classifications? Yeah, that's a really good question that I should not have skipped over. Um, so <laughs> what we did is we took from each of these runs uh, a little bit of time. So we had a warm-up period and then we took the earliest period of time after what we considered the warm-up that we classified that we labeled that ourselves as non-fatigued. So wanted to make sure it wasn't, you know, those first couple steps, which probably aren't totally normal, but um, once someone was warmed up and into the run, but hadn't quite gotten tired yet, took that as the non-fatigued portion. And then we took the last um, end of the run in each situation. And we labeled that as the fatigued condition. So yeah, yeah. Great, good question. And so, <laughs> You would measure like their elements, like their, their biomechanics measure their cadence and other like parameters like knee flexion and that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. And you'd see their fresh state. And then you'd see once you've put them through a fatigued test, mm -hmm. what their di that difference is. And then based on those differences, you could say, okay, this person is um, fresh versus fatigued. And then you apply that to a big, bigger group and see if that applies. And like you said, when it came to the group, classifications they didn't really come to any differences so would the um potential reason for that being just people fatigue completely differently people move differently in a fatigue state people have different strategies when it comes to a fatigue state yeah that was pretty much what we concluded was that this is just such an individual response to fatigue uh, the way that you change it's probably reliant on your body type, your foot strike, your training history, ways you've been coached in the past, you know, all these different factors that are very unique to you. And um, you can't really get information about when you're looking at a big group. So, yeah. And I think people have different strategies, like even, it doesn't even need to be unconscious strategies. Like I know if I'm running fatigued, I consciously make an effort to keep my cadence high just because I don't know, I feel kind of better with it. But if I unconsciously just do what feels natural, I'd feel a little bit more sluggish. And I think my cadence mm -hmm. probably would drop a little bit more, but people have internal cues that they might use, whether it is conscious or unconscious to, you know, hit the ground softer or straighten out my knee or, you know, increase my step length or something like that, which is completely individualized, but can be changed like people can change mm -hmm. their biomechanics pretty quickly um if it is a conscious effort but yeah. i guess to make this practical for recreational runners and those sorts of things have you identified any particular strategies that when someone is running and they are starting to get fatigued um any particular changes in a fatigue state knowing that everyone's an individual there's no common i guess traits there but have you identified a group of any sort of common characteristics um, so for sure, the literature will say that um, knee flexion or increase in knee flexion, um, and I'm pulling this from other studies because there's more expansive work on this done as well, um, increase in trunk flexion. Um, when you're running outdoors, we see a decrease in cadence, increase in ground contact time. Those are the most typical changes that we see. But um, I think the easiest way to 
kind of be able to apply this to yourself is just noticing the changes that you might be experiencing. And if you have the data and you have the kind of ability to look at it and see if you can see some of those trends, especially if you can pick up on it, if you have a lot of data that on yourself that you're keeping, I think just even noticing it, um, whether um, you realize that that's maybe from some kind of weakness that you might be thinking uh, that you might be noticing. I don't think it ever hurts to get into the gym and work on some strengthening stuff. Um, but even just uh, one really practical thing that I think we can take away from this, again, I want to caveat, I didn't test this at all, but this is something that I think is could be really important to take away is just using changes in biomechanics as kind of a signal. So uh, it doesn't necessarily, like we said, we don't necessarily know whether or not these changes are protective or dangerous. It's hard to say at this point, uh, especially because most of this work has been done in group-based analyses and haven't really been able to find anything conclusive. So um, hopefully that'll be kind of forthcoming as this line of research continues. But uh, using it as a signal, I think, is something that we can do right now. So in a really reductive example, if you run 10 kilometers every day and usually you start noticing kind of a trunk forward lean at, you know, you start noticing yourself leaning forward a little more around eight kilometers every day. But then one day you see that start creeping in at three kilometers, you know, you might, that just gives you information about yourself and how you're running in a fatigued state at that point. And maybe it's because you didn't get enough sleep last night, or maybe it's a signal to yourself that you're not fueling properly. Maybe you're in a really hard training stage and that's the goal is to be in more of a fatigued state so you're kind of like nope this is good it means that i'm on the right path but if you're supposed to be tapering and you're noticing that you're getting this fatigue response earlier than you should be that's maybe kind of some information for you to have about yourself that i think can be really helpful so that doesn't even necessarily reflect the specifics of what's going on or how that might be connected to an injury risk, but it can, I think, be a really helpful kind of training load signal that people might not be noticing right now um, that you can be tracking in addition to other metrics. Yeah. I guess having like a um, training with a purpose and like some people might want to train into fatigue mm -hmm. because they're training for a marathon and maybe they're doing a long run that's getting closer to like their marathon distance or like, you know, 30 kilometers or 20 miles or something along those lines. And they say, okay, well, I have the goal here. I need to try to recognize or at least um, be familiar with running in a fatigued state. And so mm -hmm. that's the purpose of my training. And so running in a fatigued state towards the end might serve that purpose. Um, as well as I think a lot of runners, they tend to, um, when it comes to getting to the closer to that marathon race day, they'll do like a six kilometer run the day before their long run so that they enter fatigue a bit sooner into that long run and therefore can be exposed and recognize and um, be familiar with that fatigue state for longer. Um, so obviously serves a purpose, but mm -hmm. like you say, if you have a idea where it's like, okay, today's my run. I should be feeling relatively fresh for the whole time. I should be um, making this my dedicated easy run. I should finish easy. I should feel still quite fresh at the end, but then they're noticing that fatigue's coming on a lot sooner or if at all, um, maybe that can be 
some warning signs that I am maybe training too hard or need some recovery time, need extra sleep and some extra elements. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly what I've been kind of thinking about this. Because of course there are, depending on your goal and your training phase, you really might want to be in a relatively fatigued state, but um, just being able to use it as information and making sure that you're uh, using it to your advantage and not crossing over into having it be detrimental, um, I think is where it becomes really helpful to have an extra signal to kind of tell you where you're at. Yeah. And I think it's a big mind shift for me as well, learning about this, because before having a chat with you, I would think that, okay, we want to stay out of running fatigued as much as possible because, you know, when you hit the ground, your body sort of attenuates that shock and you've got Mm -hmm. these muscles that attach the bones and the muscles can help absorb a lot of that shock so that the, the bones don't, you know, get an abrupt sort of force and gets too much stress to that. And when you're fatigued, the muscles are less able to attenuate that shock as it hits the ground and therefore you absorb these loads that are, um, a lot that's a lot more abrupt, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. like it's less handled um, and therefore can spike your risk of injuries. But like you've said, there's no real evidence yet to suggest that running in fatigue state will increase injuries. In fact, um, the automatic or unconscious adjustments that we make when running fatigue can actually be a protective mechanism because if there is, let's if we go back to that, um, that example before, if my muscles are more fatigued, and I can't attenuate those shock, the shock that goes through the ground, then maybe I have to let hit the ground softer. Maybe I need mm-hmm. to bend my knee a little bit more, or maybe I do need to sag when I hit the ground and my cadence does need to maybe change in order to absorb those forces a bit more safely. Um, and I guess if you're training for a marathon, we would expect to hit fatigue at some stage can't expect to stay fresh the entire yeah. time so um, maybe, maybe it's worth Elliot Kipchoge. yeah <laughs> maybe yes I don't think Elliot's <laughs> listening to this podcast but I think would it'd be realistic to say that or unrealistic to expect to stay fresh throughout a marathon so therefore maybe trying to train within those loads is um, a part of training so I guess that's opened up my eyes and yes like you say maybe there is that trade-off because when you are running fatigue, it's like it's um, the changes that we make are detriment to performance, but maybe have their, their purpose um, when it comes to protecting you from injuries. Yeah. There's also an interesting conversation to be had around variability. And there's a lot of really interesting work going on here in kind of a few different ways, but that there's in theory kind of an optimal amount of variability and the original research in this was actually done in gait in elderly people. So it's a little bit different population, but the theoretical potential can be applied to running as well, where they saw that um, low variability in gait was actually associated with more neurodegenerative diseases that only having one or a few more rigid movement patterns were actually a sign of poor health, whereas having too much variability could also be a sign of having some neurodegeneration. But there was kind of an optimal, the most healthy people that they were studying were showing kind of this optimal or kind of middle of the bell curve level of variability in their gait. And kind of the theorized uh, background or the reasoning for that was that maybe um, 
you know, thinking about stressing tissues, you have, let's say you do have an optimal natural running form that you produce when you're not tired. Um, Even that, if you're running, if you're striking exactly the same place every time, even if that's the best place for your body to absorb force, those tissues still have a limit. Um, And so if you never change that running form, then they will eventually get overstressed and reach their limits. Maybe that's pretty far out. Maybe you have to run a really long distance to get there. But um, in theory, having a couple, maybe even their very subtle ways of kind of rotating through or switching through movement patterns that your body might have, even in a non-fatigue state that you're probably not even noticing. Um, there's So that's kind of an interesting thing too that people have looked at. So maybe your actual biomechanics are not switching between non-fatigued and fatigue states, but is your level of variability switching? Maybe you have, and again, this is reductive, but to simplify a lot of people much smarter than me, um, you might have five different movement patterns that your body's kind of rotating through when you're fresh and non-fatigued. And maybe as you get fatigued, you switch into one of those Um, You are kind of losing those options for movement patterns Um, that can also that's also been kind of theorized as maybe something that's going on with this change in fatigue as well. And um, there's a lot of interesting work going on around looking at changes and variability as well. Unfortunately, a lot of that is kind of at a subconscious level. That's very subtle changes in um, ways that we move that we can really a lot of times only see with like motion cameras and that sort of thing, but still very interesting to kind of think about and think about the ways that your body's kind of trying to move and absorb forces it um, to keep protecting those tissues and how the nervous system and neuromuscular system kind of goes about doing that optimally. Yeah. Well, I guess that's why running related injuries are so common in the running populations is because it is one repetitive motion that generates, you know, somewhat high forces in mm-hmm. relation to, you know, cyclists or swimmers and that sort of stuff um, just repeated over and over and over. And any slight variation could help offer different load to different mm-hmm. tissues and sort of offset that, um, you know, um, yeah, I guess transfer that load to slightly different locations of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, part of me thinks of, um shoe variability as well i know there was um there has been some research about swapping people who swap out their shoes a little bit um tends to reduce their risk of injury Mm -hmm. but maybe that's just because it does subject the body to slightly different loads um not run by run like not session by session but like over a week if you've changed your Mm -hmm. shoes out and swapped them out then you're you're applying loads slightly differently to the body and so therefore potentially lowering your risk of accumulating overloaded injuries to one particular tissue um maybe there's something to be said for that but something to be said for like you said adopting whether that be unconsciously different strategies to um vary up your foot contact or like your the way you move through space to offer that different variations yeah yeah it's really some interesting stuff i know and i'm thinking of one study in particular where they looked at uh the differences in uh what am I? What am I thinking of? A specific variability measurement in uh, biomechanics between a group that had previously had tibial stress injuries and those who had not, and they did find much 
a huge reduction in variability after fatigue in those who had been previously injured than when you compared to those who had not been injured. And it's hard to, you know, draw so many conclusions from retrospective studies. You don't know if that was caused by coming back from the injury and kind of a self-protective mechanism, or if that was why the injury was caused in the first place, this reduction in variability, but still some really interesting work and interesting stuff to think about. And yeah, I totally agree mm-hmm. with your shoe point. Um, it, I think it can maybe spread out the adaptation a little bit and make sure that you're yeah. getting a more thorough exposure. With my, uh, I guess, preconceived ideas about fatigued running before this conversation, um, I think I, I now sort of recall uh, there was a paper looking at um, bone stress reactions and they looked at a group of people who have had foot bone stress reactions in the past and compared to those who haven't had bone stress fractures in their foot in the past and then looked how they run and looked at them running fatigued and saw how much ground reaction force, how much loading there was um, in a fatigue state compared to one group, history of stress fractures, other group, history of no stress fractures. And they found that the history, the one that had the history of stress fractures hit the ground harder when they do run fatigued. Um, So I guess maybe there is something there to be like injury specific about running fatigued or maybe some strategies for that group of people when they are fatigued to Mm -hmm. run softer, hit the ground softer, increase their cadence or something like that, some sort of strategies. But um, like you said, every individual seems like every individual fatigues differently or they have different fatigue strategies. Um, Maybe there is some sort of strategies that link a certain population to certain types of injuries. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My lab that I was in at UFC prior to me getting there had done a lot of really interesting stuff with subgroup analysis as well. And uh, before you get to the individual level, I mean, even just separating out female versus male runners, um, competitive versus recreational runners, um, different ways that you can stratify by age and training history and that sort of thing all make a little bit more clear, make these relationships a little bit more clear. I'm sure again, I, in, from my work, I would argue that, you know, the best way to do this is to look at an individual, but that's not always possible. And so doing a little bit more of this work and, you know, specific injuries, specific populations, um, any kind of subgroup is, I think, um, going to get us a little bit closer to relevant answers as well. Yeah. Well, looking forward to seeing what the research, ongoing research is like in this field, especially once you start investigating further. Um, Is there any other sort of practical takeaways that runners can take away from your research and what we've talked about today? Feel free to repeat yourself on earlier things that we've said, but any other final takeaways for runners? Um, So I think really my most kind of key takeaway here is just the being able to use these uh, biomechanical changes as a signal. Um, Again, not necessarily, we don't have the evidence to interpret them a lot further than that yet. But the one thing that is clear in all of this literature that's been very conflicting and inconsistent, what we do always find is people's biomechanics do change with fatigue. That's true for pretty much everyone. And so um, noticing what that is for you um, and 
noticing when it's showing up, what situations, at what time, and being able to use it as a signal for your own training, I think can be really beneficial. And then again, um, subgroup analysis discussion aside, um, just making sure that while of course, there's lots of great group-based research out there. I don't want to take anything away from that. Um, seeing advice that is pulled from an average, uh, not all that's going to be relevant for you. So I think back like a couple of years when I know that the 180 strides per minute thing was kind of a big deal and um, everyone was being told to switch their cadence to 180 strides per minute. And that's been since kind of disproven, but um, I think that that was really strong advice at the time. And of course, that's not necessarily going to work for everyone. Um, it's going to depend on the type of workout you're doing, how long your stride is, how tall you are, um, what speed you're going, what shoes you're wearing, what surface you're running on. That can't just be true. And we find out not even all of the pros are running at, when you actually look at it, not even all of them are using 180 strides per minute. So looking at this advice that um, is kind of derived from an average or from a group that maybe you're not necessarily a part of is not necessarily going to always be helpful. So I think this is just the benefit of, you know, keeping training journals, looking at your own data if you do use wearables and trying to be able to make as many conclusions for your own, based on your own training history as possible. Um, again, I, I don't want to oversell this individual thing. There's of course a lot of great advice that um, like coaches can give from having history with working with other people and seeing different situations. But um, when we're talking about broad, widely disseminated kind of rules of thumb, if it's not working for you, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily in the wrong. Um, I think that that's really important because it's hard to get, it's hard to write uh, pop pieces of running science without kind of getting down to just an average, but it's also hard to take individual takeaways from that that are important and relevant for you. Yeah. And like you say, there, there can be objective data. You can use wearables to sort of see, use that as like a signal, um, but also like your running journals and also just mid-run internal cues of yeah. how you're running like perceived effort perceived posture perceived how you're striking the ground um your sound how loud you're hitting like all of those things can just be some nice cues just to see just to check in just to see where you're at and see how far into your run um those changes start um, occurring and so i think a lot of runners rely a bit too heavily on wearables um some runners rely heavily on wearables and i think uh, it does collect a certain portion can be useful. Um, but I think every runner should look at, um, just like learning or practicing their internal cues, practicing their internal perception of how they're running, um, how they're moving through space and how they're feeling their effort levels and that sort of stuff. Because, um, like you say, there might be a signal that fatigue's coming on a lot sooner, whether that's training prep, whether that's recovery, whether that's their fueling, maybe they haven't hydrated well or haven't ate, eaten enough or fueled properly. And um, they can be very, very important signals for not only reducing their risk of injury, but um, helping their performance and just learning more about their body and how their individual response is to um, pushing themselves to the limits. So um, I'll be 
keeping a close eye on this, keeping a close eye on this. And like you said, there's a lot of research to be done, followed to follow what's already been done. Um, I know there's a lot of work that goes into this sort of research. So thanks for all you've done. And um, yeah, look forward to seeing what comes out in the next couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any other ideas or directions for the future where, where this might lead? Uh, yeah, I think kind of the the natural next steps here are to continue kind of fleshing out this um, individualized signature or fingerprint of fatigue, uh, looking at what other kinds of sensors we can add. I'm really excited about new developments in wearable tech, you know, looking at different um, textiles and other physiological signals that we might be able to integrate into these models as well. I'm, I'm a biomechanics person, so that's why I've been talking about biomechanics and running form this whole time. But obviously, there's a lot more that plays into fatigue and injuries and performance uh, that are not just running biomechanics. So being able to add some additional sensors to get more physiological information in addition to these biomechanical signals, um, I think would be another really exciting step as well. Um, are you changing your form at a certain heart rate? Is there, you know integrating incline and that sort of thing in different types of workouts. I think those are all relevant variables that we didn't quite get to address in this one, but um, in the future, I think could be really interesting to explore further. Excellent, Hannah. Well, like I say, thanks for all you do. Thanks for all your hard work and um, coming out here to at least talk about the research and how it can help everyday runners. So thanks for taking the time to come on. Yeah, thank you so much. I loved having a chance to chat about it. If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20-minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list so you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk, and increase your performance. If emails aren't for you, consider my Facebook group, Instagram, and YouTube channels. And remember, each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. Mm-hmm.